you may be seated. So I was thinking this week about epitaphs. Good, Cheryl. Yeah. So an epitaph is a summation or an evaluation of a person's life. I'm one of those strange people that like to read the obit section of the newspaper. Not because I have a death wish, but it's a short biography of people's lives. One of my favorite reads is biographies, especially missionary biographies. I just love them. But obits are like these shortened versions of a person's life. And they, they tell you, some of these things, you know, the epitaph on a gravestone. I like to go to um, cemeteries and just kind of look at the gravestones. And that's all you know about these, these people. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, they lived 85 years and all you know is she cooked a good meal. <laughs> you know, mother... Uh, beloved sister, you know, you're looking at these things and you're thinking, this is the summation. This is what others want you to know about this person. Or perhaps it's uh, some write their own before they even die. This is what I want people to know about me. Certain epitaphs marking gravestones, I, I looked up some. Betty Davis, she did it the hard way. Richard Hind, I don't know these people. I, I didn't know Betty on a first name basis, but I knew of her. Richard Hind, here lies the body of Richard Hind, who was neither ingenious, sober, nor kind. George Johnson, here lies George Johnson, hanged by mistake in 1882. He was right, we was wrong, but we strung him up and now he's gone. Jeremiah Johnson, I told you I was sick. <laughs> this one I like. Quick draw McGraw. He had the second fastest draw, only bedded by slow draw sloth. And then finally, Harry Edsel Smith. This is a little tragic. He looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was on its way. It was. In actuality, it is a very sobering thing to consider how your life will be remembered or if it will be remembered at all. Though these epitaphs give the summation of people's lives, they do not explain why or how their lives were summarized this way. Rehoboam and Ahijah's epitaphs are tragic. Though both men reigned as kings over the kingdom of Judah, the summation of their reigns is not positive. When you look at the overall picture of everything and it's weighed in the balances, it's tragic. The end is a negative and not a positive. In Second Chronicles 12, 13 through 14, it says this about Rehoboam. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess, and he did evil. There's the summation. He did evil. Then there's Abijah, Rehoboam's son. In 1 Kings 15, verses 2 through 3, we're told he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah. I don't know what it is with these double A's and the mothers, but nevertheless. The grandmother of Absalom, 
And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So we get evil and disloyal. Although Rehoboam did many good things, he heeded the word of the prophet Shemaiah and did not go to war against Jeroboam or the rest of Israel because he was told not to by the Lord. Though he continued to support the temple of God in Jerusalem, though he allowed the Levites, the priests, and godly people to migrate into Judah from Israel and provided sanctuary for them, though he walked in the way of Solomon and David for three years, a godly walk, though he strengthened the kingdom of Judah and fortified the outlying cities, placing captains in them, supplying them with food and oil and wine, and putting shields and spears in each, making them strong. Although he humbled himself after the invasion of the king of Egypt, Shishak, and confessed that the Lord was righteous and that he had sinned and that he was wrong in abandoning God, the end of his story is still tragic. And even though the subjects or the people in Judah fared well. They weren't oppressed by him. And overall, they were able to live somewhat productive lives. The end or his epitaph or the summation of his life is is sad. Rehoboam's reign was marked by division. During his time, the kingdom of Israel was split because he sought the counsel of elders and of his own peers rather than of God. Isn't it interesting as you read about Rehoboam, you hear about this problem coming to him where Jeroboam, who had been a servant of Solomon, comes to Rehoboam and he says, listen, I used to be in charge of the workforce here in Israel. We built the temple We built your father's palace. You know, we've done all this building, and it's too hard. It's gotten so difficult. And we need a lightening of our load. And the taxes are too high because we've been paying for all of these places to be built, and now they're built. So it's time to stop levying the people so heavily. It reminds me of the Coronado Bridge. Um, it was paid for. In fact, I've, I read that it w- it's been paid for over 500 times now, you know, by the um, toll that they charge you to cross over the bridge. Where's that money going? I just want to know, where's that? You know what? Where is all the money going? Okay, that's another story. We're not going to go there. <laughs> but he did not seek the counsel of the Lord. Now, we can see the wisdom of the elders when they told him, if you will speak kindly to this people, if you will listen to them and speak kind words and not harsh words, they will be your servants forever. If you'll, you'll understand their needs and you'll just sit down and, and speak kindly to them, you'll, you'll have the kingdom of, of Israel in your hands and they'll be loyal. But then there were his peers, those who had grown up with them, those who were entitled, and they said, are you kidding? 
Don't let the people get by with this. Who's the boss? You show them who's the boss. You tell them my little finger is going to be bigger than my father's waist. He scourged you with whips. I'm using scorpions. That didn't go over well. Nobody likes the thought of scorpions. And so he listened to his peers. It's interesting that that appealed to him more. The idea of of power and threatening and not giving up anything. Years ago, there was a um, Peanuts cartoon that was on television. And our whole family, speaking of the Brodersons, who are now big but were little, we all watched it. And in it, it's um, Lucy singing. And she sings this song, Lucy's the Boss. So you better listen to Lucy, listen to Lucy, and do what Lucy says. And it's, you know, pretty tough. And so we were singing it on the way to Bass Lake for a family vacation. And we would just choose somebody randomly in our car to sing about, like, you know, Daddy's the boss, Daddy's the boss, so you better listen to Daddy, listen to Daddy. And we were doing this, and (laughs) Char just started crying. He's all of three years old, and he's like, no, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. And so while we're singing Daddy's the Boss, he's like, no, Char is the boss. Char is the boss, because he used to lisp. And, you know, it was comical, because here's this three-year-old who's having a meltdown because we will not proclaim him the boss of our car. But, you know, there's that desire in men, in women, to control and to say, no, I'm not giving up any control. You think it's been bad? It's going to be worse. You know, I found that whenever, you know, whenever you're not leaning into the counsel of God, you become oppressive. You, you, you try to get your will accomplished by bullying or intimidation or being mean. And whenever... That's the case. You, you need to say, you know what? No. <laughs> I'm going to let God do this. And then I can be sweet and he can put the pressure on. I prefer that. So what happened is when he came back with this message for the people, because he listened to his peers, the people with Jeroboam said, what, what investment do we have in David? Why should we care about David's house or whether God made David king if it's not in our best interest? Then we're out of here. We're going to do what's in our best interest. And so Israel was divided with ten tribes going with Jeroboam, making Jeroboam king. And with two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, staying with Israel. Remember, the Levites weren't really counted because they were the priests. They were, they were mobile. They were in every place in Israel. And so this is what you happened. Then you find that not only was the kingdom of Israel divided during his reign, but Rehoboam brought idolatry into Judah. We're told that he abandoned the God of his fathers, that he built the high places, shrines in the hills, which was a substitute for going to the temple and worshiping God in the way that God prescribed. This was something that people did because they wanted to worship God in their own way. He also allowed for sacred pillars, which was worship to other gods, wooden images, and perverted persons in the land. 
cult prostitution, which was a practice of the heathen pagan nations, the Canaanites, before Israel came into the land. We're told that during his reign, Israel was invaded, defeated, and oppressed by Shishak, the king of Egypt. We're told that Shishak carried away all the storehouses of treasure that were amassed by Solomon. Everything that his father had built up, everything that his father had stored up, all that wealth. Remember, we're told that during Solomon's time, silver was so common, it lost its value. All that is gone. The golden shields are gone. And Rehoboam has to replace them with brass. He literally, he literally impoverished Judah because of his paganism, because of his idolatry. And then he had to pay tribute to Egypt. Not only were they impoverished, Judah went into debt. God had said to Israel in the promises in Deuteronomy, if you serve me, if you make me first, you will loan to other nations and they will borrow from you. But if you forsake me, you will borrow from other nations. They will loan to you. And that's what we see right here with Rehoboam paying tribute to Shishak and under the impression of Egypt. Though Rehoboam began with so many advantages. He was not a kid. Solomon had been young and inexperienced. But Rehoboam was 41 years old. He had seen his father's rulership. Not only that, remember Proverbs. 3,000 Proverbs are written to Rehoboam from his father. And what does his father say in the first chapter? Get wisdom. It's the principal thing. He gave Rehoboam all the instruction he needed to be a good king. In chapter 3, that verse that you know so well, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God and he will direct your ways. And we see right at the beginning of his reign, he didn't listen. And yet he had the advantage of all those proverbs from his father. He had the council of elders from his father. Those men who had wisely instructed Solomon, who had been Solomon's board, so to speak, who could be there to help him, to help him apply wisdom, to know the ins and outs of the kingdom. He ignored their counsel. Though he had an established kingdom, this wasn't a kingdom that needed to be built up or needed to be invested in. There were no more building projects left. All he needed to do was maintain because it was already established. There were no wars to fight. He didn't have the Philistine threat like his grandfather David did. He didn't have the threat of Assyria or Syria as his grandsons would have. There was peace, and the kingdom of Israel had been so respected Not only that, it was a wealthy kingdom. He didn't come in with a deficit. He didn't have a trillion dollar deficit. He didn't have any national debt. It was debt free. In fact, they had wealth. He had a beautiful kingdom. 
that he inherited. The temple was beautiful, one of the wonders of the world. He had palaces that he had been given by his father. And Jerusalem and the walls had been fortified and built up during his father's reign. Not only that, he was chosen. He was the chosen one of his father of all his brothers. And there were quite a few. You can understand that with, you know, all those wives of his dad. There were quite a few sons to choose from. He was the chosen one. You know, there's something to being chosen that, that is like, I, 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 somebody saw something in me, and that's why I'm here. He was also instructed by his father. We talked about the Proverbs. But he also, you know, 41, again, he had been under the instruction of his father, the training of his father. So how could it be? How could it be that with all those advantages, Rehoboam's epitaph would be so tragic? The same can be said for his son Abijah. He had many advantages. Though the kingdom was divided, it was a smaller kingdom to rule. He saw his father's mistakes. He was chosen above his brothers. He was chosen when he was still young to be the leader over his brothers. He had been trained for the kingship early on. There was a temple in Jerusalem. There was a place of worship. It was established. And we know that the Levites and the priests and the godly people who had been living in Israel all migrated to Judah. So he had a great constituency. By Abijah's own admission, he had the advantage of God's favor. He was from the house of David. The priests of God were living and operating in Jerusalem according to the commands of God. And at one point, God was the head of Judah. They were looking to him. He was victorious in the battle against Israel. He was outnumbered at one point, two to one. His troops were 400,000. Jeroboam's troops were 800,000. He was outwitted in the battle. He was surrounded. Uh, Those of Jeroboam's troops were better fighters, had the greater advantage But we're told when Abijah and the people of Judah cried out to the Lord and the priests blew the trumpet, God gave the victory to Judah, to Abijah. And 500,000 of the choice warriors of Israel, Jeroboam's army, were put down. Yet Abijah, King Abijah's epitaph, was that he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. And he reigned only three short years, and all his reign was marked by skirmishes with Israel. Even though they had this battle, even though 500 choice men were put down, the battles continued throughout that three years of his reign. So, why, in the end, Were the reigns of Rehoboam and Abijah so unproductive? The answer is in 2 Chronicles 12.14 and 1 Kings 15.3. 
In 2 Chronicles 12, 14, it tells us that Rehoboam did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Concerning Abijah, we're told in 1 Kings 15, 3, that he followed in his father's footsteps and was unproductive because his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. You see, heart preparation, which causes loyalty to God, is essential for productive spiritual lives. If we do not prepare our heart to seek the Lord, if we do not make this the priority of our life, our lives will be unproductive. Our lives will end with epitaphs like, she done him good or she done him evil. We don't want that kind of epitaph. We, we don't want that to be the summation of our life. Without this heart preparation, we will receive wrong counsel. We will be unstable. There will be division. We will be under the influence of others rather than being the influence in others' lives. There will be oppression, wars, skirmishes, and no constancy to our lives. We need to guard our hearts against the mistakes of these kings, who, though they had great advantages, who, though they experienced the grace of God, were given the promises of God, had great victories, were given great kingdoms, came from the stock of David, were given great wisdom, They failed in their service to God. So how? How can we prepare our hearts to seek the Lord? I'm going to give you three steps. Number one, it must begin with a determination. You could say even dedication. A determination or a dedication that you will seek the Lord. Again, going back to 3, 5, and 6, Proverbs. In all your ways, acknowledge him. But you have to say, I am going to acknowledge God in all my ways. I don't know about you, but when I make a resolve, I have to put post-it notes all over my house now. Because I forget even my New Year's resolution. It's like, really? Did I say I was going to do that? You know, but... Now I don't have children. I'm empty nester. So there's nobody there to to call me on all those things and remind me of of what I said because Brian can't remember either. I don't know if he ever heard it, even though I said it to him. But it must be a resolve in in our hearts. It's got to begin there. I will seek the Lord and serve him only. That's the resolve that will carry us through the hard times because otherwise we'll be taken with whatever comes unless there's that determination to plant ourselves in the Lord. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We have to make that our determination. 
This is now my new identity. I am in Christ. As it says in Colossians chapter 3, and Christ who is our life. This has got to be our dedication, our resolve. I am dedicated. I am determined. I love that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I don't know if you know the origin of that song. But it was, it was sung out by um, a man who was um, being, um, from what I've heard, he was being killed. Um, he was going to be boiled in oil, from what I've heard, um, by a tribe in Africa for his um, dedication, his determination to follow the Lord. And they were giving him a chance to recant. And all of a sudden, he began to sing out, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And as the flames heated up, he sang all the louder, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. You see, unless we determine to seek the Lord, the flames of this life will burn away our resolve. There must be a determination. There must be a planting Like Psalm 1, we must make our roots go deep and say, we are determined to follow Jesus. Next, there must be a dedication. In Romans 12, 1, Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your reasonable service. In Romans 6.13, he said, you know, you used to present your body, your instruments, your hands, your feet to the desires, your sinful desires. Now take your hands, take your feet, take your mouth, take your mind and dedicate it to the purposes of God. That's what needs to come back. First determination, next dedication, that these hands belong to God. This mouth belongs to God. This mind, belong, what's left of it, belongs to God. This is his. And I want to think thoughts that please God. And when those thoughts come to mind that are not pleasing to God, I want them out. When words come out that aren't pleasing to God, I don't want to speak them. I, I, I want to repent of them. I need to reckon that my life is for the purposes of God. That my feet are here to walk in the paths of God. That my mouth is here to speak the words of God. I love that hymn that says, take my um, lips and let them move at the impulse of thy love. And, And it talks about, I think I got it mixed up, but that's all right. You know what I mean. 
But, but there's that one part about, you know, I don't want to, I only want to sing songs for you and for your glory. You know, I've got these ears. I only really can take in so much. And I'm finding I don't want to listen to trite things anymore. You know, because I, I'm, I'm bombarded every place I go with the music of this world. I mean, it's in the market. It's in parking lots. You know, it's, it's in restaurants. But it's not in my house. And I heard about a cupcake place at Fashion Island that it's not there either. So I have to eat their sugar-free cupcakes now. But you know what? I want, in my house, I want it to be filled with worship for Jesus. And in my car, I want it to be worship music. I can't control the world, though I've tried. But I can control my, my car. It's my car. And it's going to be music that honors God. I want to hear things that honor God. I want the input to honor God with my eyes. I want to look at things that honor God. I I want to read stories that honor God. I want to read the Bible. I want my mind and my heart filled with what God is doing and what God has done and who God is. Because what I fill my heart with, thank you, all three of you, what I fill my heart, five, what I fill my heart with is what's going to come out of my mouth, right? What I fill my mind with is how I'm going to move. It's going to determine what I do. I only have so much time on earth. Rehoboam had 17 years to, to plant and to do right. Abijah had three years. You know, when we're put in these positions, in these places of influence, we don't know how much time we'll be in these places. And we need to dedicate ourselves to God. And that, you know, I've been given hands. I have a friend who was walking and bumped into a pole and has had to have three operations to reattach the retina in her right eye. And she does not have any guarantee that she'll ever have sight in her right eye again. And I'm thinking, how fragile is life? How fragile is our eyesight? I, I, you know, you, you take these things for granted that I'll always be able to see. I'll always be able to hear. I'll always be able to walk. I'll always be able to cook or move or use my hands. But you won't. So why we have these opportunities, these placements, we need to be dedicated to God. Here's your hands, God. Here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's my feet. Here it is. You know, I've often thought, my body's not perfect. Maybe you've noticed. But I'm not looking at yours, so don't look at mine. But you know, it's not. But you know what? God was so exact in how the temple was supposed to be built. He was very exact in how my body was supposed to be created. Even even the crazy things. I'm going to confess something to you, and I don't know if I should say this from the pulpit, but I'm going to tell you anyway. My grandson was walking behind me up the stairs. I was wearing my pajama shorts. And he said, Grandma, what are those dots in the back of your leg and lines? He's, He's just so, like, observant. And I said, honey, it's kind of a big word. It's called cellulite. And he's like, oh. Is it dangerous? No. And not only that, you being a man will never have it. But you know, 
I have that there for a reason. And the reason is that I don't go around wearing those shorts publicly. <laughs> that I keep modest. But you know, you were created just the way you are. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And your body and your creation is perfectly suited for the purposes that God has. Even down to your eye color. When I was young, I wanted blue eyes. My mom has the most beautiful blue eyes. I've always loved her blue eyes. Even when she was mad at me, her blue eyes were beautiful. Didn't matter. When she was happy, they were beautiful. I remember one time she was very upset with me. And she said, what do you have to say to yourself? And I was thinking, wow, she's beautiful even when she's upset and her face turns red. Look how it makes her eyes even bluer. Seriously, I was lost in that thought. And she said, what do you have to say to yourself? And I said, you are beautiful even when you're angry at me. And she said, you know what? That's a wonderful thought, but it's not going to get you out of this. So I said, okay, what were we talking about? I know it was about me, but let's talk about you, Mom. I always wanted those blue eyes. And I told her, I said, you know, why couldn't you give me blue eyes? You gave it to my two brothers. They already had the advantage. They're so handsome. But I could have used that, Mom. I could have used that advantage. And I remember I woke up in the morning, and she had put a a book by my nightstand. And she had a little marker in it. And it was at the page of Amy Carmichael praying to God every night that God would turn her brown eyes blue. And how that when she grew older, she realized that God had given her the perfect eye color for her ministry in India. And you know, God didn't make a mistake with your eye color or your hair color, because he knew you were going to change that anyway. He didn't make a mistake when he created you. He did it absolutely perfectly for the purposes that he intended. And as we dedicate ourselves to those purposes, you're going to say, Aha, now I know why I have brown eyes. Now I know why you created me this way, why you did this in my life, because it is the best way to accomplish your purposes. So we need to dedicate ourselves. I've often thought that one of the things that tripped up so many of the kings in Israel was that they tried to be the kings of Israel or they tried to be the kings of Judah instead of the servants of God. When God refers to David, he always calls him my servant David. He never calls him King David, but my servant David. If we would say that our first call is being the servants of the Lord, if that would be our identity, as it was Paul's identity, the servant of God, oh, then we will have that stability that we need. Then we will have those victories that we crave. Then we will have that peace that we desperately need. Finally, we need diligence. You see, it's not enough just to be determined or dedicated. We've got to have diligence. In other words, we've got to strengthen that resolve and that dedication. How do we show diligence? In 2 Peter 1.5, it says, 
with all diligence, add to your faith. With all diligence, put effort into strengthening your faith and growing in your faith. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter gives us a growth chart about how we're to add to our faith um, godliness and to godliness. And, you know, he's got this, this growth chart, so to speak. And the end of this growth chart is brotherly kindness. That's, that's how you measure your growth. Am I growing? Am I kind to my brothers? Is that love of, of God flowing through me? But we need to add to our faith. We never just rest in our faith like I'm gone far enough. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to, you know, work at this. Do you realize it's always going to take an effort to grow spiritually? You know that, right? It just doesn't happen. It's not like osmosis. You have to put diligence into growing. And have you noticed if you stop showing diligence, it's not like you stay at the same place. You begin to lose ground. It's a spiritual principle that we always need to be showing diligence. So we need to be diligent to read, meditate, and apply God's word. This is why, you know, you can't just, you know, get up. It's not like you wake up in the morning and the Bible flies into your hand. It's like, oh, there you are. And here I am. And, you know, your glasses just come on. You know, this, we don't live in commercials. Real life is like, where's my Bible? I can't find my Bible. Where are my glasses? What did I do with my glasses? You know, because you got to put all the... Maybe you're young and you don't. But us older people, we have to put the components together. We have to bring it all together to study. And sometimes, you know... People start texting you that never text you why it's time to read your Bible. You're like, nobody sends me texts, especially not interesting ones like these. You know, or, you know, all of a sudden your computer starts dinging that you've got emails. Ding, 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 ding. You're like, who wants me right now? Oh my goodness, Target wants me right now. They're offering me a sale. <laughs> you know, or all these thoughts come into your mind, I need to do this. You know, I need to do the dishes. I need to fold the clothes. I need to do laundry. Okay, when are they ever a priority? Except for when you're going to read your Bible, right? All of a sudden, oh, it's weighing down on you. Laundry, laundry, laundry. It never speaks to you like that. Come wash me. Never. Except for when you want to read your Bible. That's why you got to show diligence. you got to make an effort to get in the Word of God. 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul said, be diligent to study. Be diligent. Put diligence in it. Put effort into reading your Bible. And not just speed reading your Bible, but to understanding what it says. As Solomon would say, with all your learning, get understanding. Get a Bible you can understand. Get a Bible you like reading. I I love the NLT. I love the Holman's Christian Standard Bible. I like the New King James. But make sure you understand it. If you're an old King James person, make sure you have a Bible next to it that you can understand that speaks English. Keep the old English. You know, what is that song we used to sing as Girl Scouts? Make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver and the other gold. You might be that person. That's fine. But do you understand what you're reading? Because unless you understand, you're not going to apply. And you're not going to be able to apply. 
Next, be diligent in prayer. Colossians 4.2, continuing in prayer, being vigilant in it. We need to continue to pray. Praying is a, a, is a time where our will is in alignment with God. Prayer is a time when we cast all our burdens upon the Lord, when we're seeking his way and not our own way. We need to be diligent in prayer. Remember Rehoboam? He didn't seek or consult with the Lord. He was doing his own thing, and the prophets had to come and stop him. We need to be diligent in prayer. What a privilege we have in prayer. What a privilege. We can pray wherever we are. We can, we can do this. Be diligent in fellowship. In Hebrews 10.25, it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, it's when we stop the fellowship, we lose that sense of accountability, and we're not... We're not on the edge anymore. And I know, I know what an effort it is to get to church. I know because I like to be in bed asleep by 8 o'clock at night. And sometimes the service doesn't end till 8.33. And then I'm looking around. You know, Brian's like, could you pray with people? I'm like, yeah. But my bed is calling me right now. And I'm actually looking for somebody to give me a ride home. I do that. And I'm like, just, I get one of the other pastors to tell Brian that I got to write home because otherwise he'll say, no, wait for me. And, and that could be as late as 10, which is like way past my bedtime. You know, it takes an effort, doesn't it? Oh, I've been at work all day. Ah. No, we need fellowship. You need to hear the word of God because it has a certain authority coming from the pulpit. We need to gather together. We need the accountability. We need the friendships. We need to know that we're not the only ones going through what we're going through. You know, sometimes you're going through a really hard time. And you're like, I'm all alone. I'm the only one. And somebody comes up to you and you're like, how are you, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, it's so bad. And you're like, it is? And they start telling you, you're like, you know what? That's worse than me. I need to pray for this person. We need fellowship because we need to be praying one for another. In fact, it says, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, when we're all alone and we're not coming to church, we're not bearing anybody's burdens but our own. And our prayers become so self-absorbed and so self-centered. But fellowship has this way of drawing you out of yourself. And you begin to pray for others. So we need to show diligence in growing in our faith, in reading our Bibles, in prayer, and in fellowship, diligence. So here it is, determination, dedication, and diligence. Because if we do not prepare our hearts to seek the Lord, we will be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, no discernment, because we're told in Hebrews chapter 5 that discernment comes by reading and using the word of God. If we do not prepare our hearts to seek the Lord, trials will move us. We will believe when things go well. We will doubt when things get tough or else. We will start going back to church in tough times and abandon the Lord in good times. It doesn't matter how many advantages we have, spiritually, physically, materially. If we do not put determination dedication, and diligence into growing in the Lord, 
We will take things into our own hands. We will lean on our own understanding. We will take bad counsel. We will fight in our own strength. We will be oppressed because life is full of obstacles. And we will not endure. We will not make it to the finish line. We will begin to compromise and take on the practices of those who do not know the Lord. We will be influenced rather than influencers. We need to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord, to be loyal to him always. This will fit us for life. This will make us productive. This will make us effective. That this is what I want my epitaph, even though I think I'm being cremated if the Lord tarries. But I'd like my epitaph to be, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Isn't that what you want to hear? Oh, let's ask the Lord to help us in our determination, preparation, dedication, and diligence to seek him with our whole heart. As God has promised, if you will seek me with your whole heart, I will be found of you. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you will help us right now. Lord, as we are here, your women, right now, Lord, and each one of us, let's just take a moment, just quietly, just to dedicate yourself afresh and anew to God, just right now. Lord, you've heard these prayers of your precious, precious daughters. Lord, I pray that you would come and strengthen our resolve, Lord, strengthen, Lord, our determination to follow you. Lord, strengthen our dedication in you. And Lord, make us diligent to pursue you with all of our heart and mind and strength and soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.